Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Mary Manzvin, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hey, Dan. Happy Hanukkah. Oh, thank you. I love Hanukkah. In fact, I believe Hanukkah is the ass-kickiest Jewish holiday this side of Purim. So true. During Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, Jews recount the tale of Judah Maccabee, the warrior priest who led a successful rebellion against King Antiochus of the Syrian Greek Empire. Waves of troops attempted to put down Judah and his army, but their fighting spirit and faith were so strong that the Maccabees were able to liberate Jerusalem and the temple from the forces of Antiochus in 164 BCE, which ushered in a period of Jewish independence in Judea. In today's episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. In honor of Hanukkah and the Maccabees, we're going to tell you eight stories. Get it? Eight? Eight, right? Each story will feature one of our favorite Jewish warriors from ancient to modern times. So let's get ready for some inspiration perspiration, and ass-kicking celebration. During Hanukkah, Jews recount and celebrate the story of Judith, a Jewish woman living in a Judean city during the 6th century BCE. Her city was under siege by the army of Holofernes, a general of Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. To save the people of her city from starvation during the siege, Judith decided to bank on a trend that's been going on since the beginning of time, men underestimating a woman's capacity for violence. Judith went to meet Holofernes and pretended she was totally willing to sell out her people and spy on the Judeans for him. She was super charming, and she and Holofernes started to hang out more and more. She also brought snacks whenever they met. He began to trust her and especially like the food she would bring him including cheese cooked into the form of a pancake. One night, while he and Judith were hanging out in his tent, he ate the cheese she had brought him, and since it was salty cheese, he quenched his thirst by drinking way too much wine and got blitzed. As soon as Holofernes had passed out, Judith took action. She grabbed him by his hair and cut off his head with his own sword. She then put the severed head into her maid's basket, and they smuggled it out of the enemy camp. The story goes that the sight of Holofernes' headless corpse produced exactly the right result. It freaked out his army so much that they decided to get the hell out of there and leave the victorious Judith's people alone. Who can blame them? This iconic decapitation later became the subject of many famous works of art by painters like Caravaggio and Botticelli. The story of Judith is, funnily enough, one reason why many Jewish communities serve cheese or dairy dishes during Hanukkah. Yes, that's right. Before the potato made its dramatic entry into Jewish food, latkes were made of cheese. In Italy, for example, ricotta latkes are still a thing. Judith gave the Jewish people her incredible ferocity and her penchant for delicious dairy products. With a name like Morris Abraham Tugun Cohen, you can assume I'm going to be talking about one badass Jew, and your assumption is correct. Morris, who was born in the UK in 1887, was raised as an Orthodox Jew and spent quality time in the streets of London picking pockets. That's when he wasn't boxing under the name Fat Moisha or stealing shit in his third identity, Harry the Ghanaf, Yiddish for thief. Oi, Gavalt, what's a parent to do? How about they send little Morris to reform school from ages 12 to 17 and then release him into the wide open spaces of Saskatchewan in the emptiest part of Canada to rehab his bad behavior through farm work and other manual toil? Guess what, mom and dad? It didn't work. Morris was just building his legend, 
prepping his mind and body for a life of adventure that seems difficult to fathom. In fact, you could safely say, Mr. and Mrs. Cohen, that reform school was a total failure. Morris doubled down on petty theft, becoming, according to one source, a, quote, grifter, pimp, card sharp, and a pickpocket. His exploits landed him in prison twice, though he seems to have talked his way out of eight other arrests around the same period. Don't underestimate Morris, however. His life of crime connected him with the Canadian Railway, who took Morris with them to Europe when they fought in World War I. When he came back, Morris oversaw Chinese immigrants working on the railroad, learned Chinese customs and traditions, and of course got really good at gambling in Chinese gaming parlors. He quickly gained an affinity for the Chinese people he met. As a poor Jew growing up in London, he felt a great deal of sympathy for the laborers who faced abuse, racism, and extreme poverty. Anti-Asian sentiment in Western Canada even eclipsed anti-Semitism, which was rampant as well. According to one biographer, his life changed completely one night in Saskatoon when he found the elderly owner of one of his favorite Chinese restaurants slash secret gambling parlors getting beaten up by a hoodlum. Morris wasn't having it. He grabbed the attacker smacked him on the head, took his weapon, and tossed him, quite literally tossed him, out of the establishment. Morris had found his other people. He joined the Chinese Tong, or Secret Society, one of the few Westerners to ever do so. He also earned the respect of the many Chinese people he came across, including Dr. Sun Yat-sen, a revolutionary who sought to rid China of imperialist rulers. At the same time, he was quickly becoming a successful real estate investor. He managed to get a hold of weapons, get them into the hands of Sun Yat-sen, and thereby became an instrumental player in the overthrow of the Chinese imperial government. It only gets crazier from there. Sun Yat-sen became China's first president, and Morris became his right-hand man. He traveled to China in 1922 at Sun Yat-sen's invitation and became his aide-de-camp, bodyguard, and chief arms supplier. Throughout, Morris remained an ardent Zionist, and his desire for the rebirth of the Jewish homeland in Israel was a cause near and dear to his heart. And through his friendship, it became near and dear to China's leaders as well. In 1920, Sun Yat-sen wrote, I express my sympathy to the movement, which is one of the greatest movements, to restore your wonderful and historical nation, which has contributed so much to the civilization of the world and which rightly deserves an honorable place in the family of nations. This was a bromance for the ages. Now, Two-Gun Cohen, so named for his ability to shoot with both hands after an arm wound, remained close to Chinese leaders. When Sun Yat-sen died in 1922, Two-Gun, we're going to call him now, was the only Westerner at the funeral. In addition to his other nicknames, at this point we assume he retired Fat Moisha and Harry the Ghanaf, Morris was now known as General Ma. That's right, the first and probably last Jewish-Chinese general. While his Chinese was basic, he and his colleagues communicated in a blend of Chinese, English, and get this, Yiddish. Yes, Yiddish. It was an official language of the Chinese secret police. From there, he played a key role in Chinese military and 20th century history. Morris even convinced the Chinese to abstain from opposing the partition of Palestine into two states, one Arab, one Jewish. Morris Tugun Cohen died in Manchester, England, his legacy ensured, and his feats honored on a headstone with writing, appropriately enough, in Hebrew, English, and Chinese. In English, he was General Morris Abraham Cohen, and in Chinese, Ma Sam, which is an approximation of his name in Chinese that also translate appropriately enough to the clenched fist. Dia Al-Kahina. The North African Berber warrior queen, Dia Al-Kahina, is a fascinating historical figure. With the rise of Islam in the 7th century, the Umayyad dynasty sought to conquer North Africa and continue to Europe through Spain. 
Hassan ibn al-Numan, an Arab-Egyptian prince, had marched from Egypt and his successful defeat of Carthage to continue through North Africa. However, Dia, in what is now present-day Algeria, hindered this plan. Dia was from a tribe that had converted to Judaism earlier in the century. She was a military leader, and her army decimated Hassan's forces in what is now Tunisia. Hassan retreated to either Libya or Egypt, where he awaited reinforcements and slowly rebuilt his army over five years. During this time, Dia attempted to prevent further incursions into her land by the growing enemy army with a scorched earth campaign, destroying strongholds in her own kingdom so that the enemy would be unable to capture anything that would benefit them when they returned. This approach was not a problem for members of her people who lived nomadic lives in the mountains and deserts, but lost her key support among those of her people who lived in permanent villages or cities. The name Al-Kahina, or Soothsayer, is possibly a reference to Arabic sources that said Dia was able to see into the future, while other scholars believe the name is a derivative of the Jewish priestly name Cohen. Of course, if she really had been able to see the future, she probably wouldn't have gone with that controversial scorched earth policy, but this is a key element of how her story was romanticized after the fact. For example, according to Arab lore, the Egyptian prince Hassan was destined to destroy a Jewish soothsayer before he could proceed to further conquests. Indeed, by the end of the 7th century, Hassan had strengthened his forces and was ready to rematch his army against Diaz. This time, she was defeated by his army, clearing the way for the Islamic conquest of Spain. Despite her loss, Diaz's warrior spirit in the face of invasion still resonates and inspires. Lydia Litvak. There's the legend of Lydia Litvak, and then there's the reality of Lydia Litvak. Frankly, from reading many accounts of this World War II Soviet fighter pilot, it's not so easy to tell the difference. Here's what we know. She excelled at shooting Nazis out of the sky. In fact, she was the first female to ever shoot down an enemy aircraft, the first of two female fighter pilots to earn the title of ace, and the record holder for the greatest number of kills for a female pilot. From there, fact and fiction get completely, utterly murky. She was known as the White Rose of Stalingrad, supposedly for the flowers painted on the side of the fuselage of her fighter. Some say they were lilies. And other military historians say no one painted anything on the side of their fuselage at that point. She might have shot down six enemy planes. Or, if we're to believe the Soviet propaganda at the time, she may have shot down 21 enemy planes. Here's what we do know. She was born in Moscow to a Jewish family in 1921. She took flying classes beginning at age 14 and did her first solo flight about a year later. By the time she was 20, she was in an all-female squadron flying missions over Stalingrad. Some say she lied about how many flight hours she had, claiming the requisite 1,000 on an Air Force recruitment form. Who's to say? We also know she was barely out of her teens and shooting highly trained Nazi pilots out of the sky. Whether it was 6 or 21 or something in between, God bless you, Lydia, you racked up kills shooting down or damaging Nazi aircraft in the Yak-1 that she flew. She also trained close to 50 pilots as an instructor. Then, on August 1st, 1943, Lydia was shot down. No one saw her parachute deploy. No one recovered the body. Rumors swirled. Was Lydia alive and living in Switzerland? Did she end up a prisoner in Germany? Had she faked her own death? In the late 1970s, after searching nearly 90 crash sites, a Soviet historian discovered the remains of an unidentified female pilot in a small village. She determined it was Lydia who had been killed in action, having sustained a mortal head wound before crashing. In 1990, Mikhail Gorbachev posthumously honored Lydia with the Hero of the Soviet Union Award 
the country's highest honor. The Legend of Lydia launched plays, movies, books, and even the career of one A-lister, Tilda Swinton. Whether her story is largely fact or propaganda or revisionist history, the truth is Lydia was one Jewish ass-kicker who earned a storied place in World War II history. Hannah Senesch had a brief life, but in the short time she was on earth, what an impact she had. Both a poet and a paratrooper, this brave young woman embodied idealism and sacrifice on behalf of the Jewish people. Hannah was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1921. The anti-Semitism her family faced in Budapest motivated her to get involved in the Zionist movement, joining the Hungarian Zionist organization Maccabea, inspired by the warriors of the Hanukkah story. Hannah left Hungary for the land of Israel, then under British control, in 1939. She immersed herself in kibbutz life, but during the Holocaust, she knew she had to step up to save her fellow Jews from destruction. She joined the Haganah, the paramilitary group that eventually became the Israel Defense Forces. In 1943, she demonstrated her incredible bravery by volunteering to parachute into Europe with the British Army to establish contact with resistance fighters on the ground. She trained intensively for her mission and was one of 33 people to parachute behind enemy lines, landing in Yugoslavia in March of 1944. She spent months with the resistance fighters and wrote her iconic poem, Blessed is the Match, during this time. Despite that danger, Hannah was determined to cross into Hungary. She was captured in the attempt. For months, Hannah was interrogated and tortured, but refused to cooperate with the enemy even when they captured her mother. Her defiant spirit was undeniable. She communicated with fellow prisoners by flashing signals out the window with a mirror and drawing stars of David in the dust. She even wrote a poem in her prison cell about her impending death. She was executed by firing squad at the age of 23. Even at the moment of her death, she demonstrated her fighting spirit by reportedly refusing her blindfold and looking her executioners directly in the face. Hannah's remains are now buried in the military cemetery on Mount Herzl in Jerusalem, and she's a national heroine in Israel and to Jewish people around the world. Israeli self-defense is having a moment, whether it's Daniel Craig, Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise, Jennifer Lopez, or Leo, when Hollywood A-listers want to kick some A, their defensive weapon of choice is Krav Maga. But the story of Krav Maga, like many stories from Jewish history, was born out of a desire to save one's own life and accomplish one simple goal, to hit back at some Nazis. Emmy was born in Hungary in 1910. The prime of his life was during the darkest period in Jewish history and possibly world history, the rise of the Nazi party and the persecution of Jews throughout Europe. The son of the Bratislava Slovakia police inspector, Emmy had practiced a variety of self-defense techniques as a child. He was also an avid fitness enthusiast competing in wrestling and other sports, including boxing and swimming. Self-defense and fighting would prove vital in the late 1930s when anti-Semitic thugs emboldened by the Nazis in Germany threatened the lives of Druze in Bratislava. Emmy and his friends fought back, protecting the neighborhood for as long as they could from those who sought to harm them. A short time later, Emmy fled Slovakia, heading for the land that would become modern-day Israel in 1942. The Haganah, the pre-state military, recognized the resource they had in Emmy. In addition to applying his self-defense techniques punching Nazis, Emmy helped to teach others. He began to teach fighters in many areas of his expertise, knife fighting, wrestling, self-defense, and physical fitness. 
Passing on his knowledge to the Haganah and later the Israeli Defense Forces, Imi empowered a generation of Jews who had been victims at the hand of Nazis to become warriors. Over 20 years, he refined his training programs and techniques. The result is a worldwide self-defense and fitness phenomenon that in recent years has made Israel the self-defense center of the universe. Shimon bar Kokhba. In the year 70 CE, the Roman Empire sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. Rome decided on a policy of Hellenization to integrate Jews into the Roman Empire. A temple to Jupiter was built over the ruins of the Jewish temple. Shimon bar Kokhba was the leader of a fierce but ultimately unsuccessful Jewish revolt against Rome between 132 and 135 CE. Many of his followers believed he was a messianic savior, descended from the line of King David. The name Bar Kokhba means son of the star and was given to him by the great influential rabbi Akiva, essentially crowning him the Messiah. Many stories surround the life of Shimon Bar Kokhba. He was reportedly of great physical strength, a natural and charismatic leader, and a devoutly observant Jew. With this cult of personality, he mustered a huge army. Bar Kokhba's rebellion initially took Rome by surprise. He began his struggle against occupying Rome in 132 CE, reconquering the Galilee, and he even retook Jerusalem, establishing an independent state over part of Judea for two years. He even began striking his own coins that read, Year One of the Liberty of Jerusalem. The threat he posed was so serious that the Roman Emperor Hadrian traveled to visit Jerusalem in 134, bringing forces from across the empire, including General Gaius Julius Severus and many legions. The Roman forces retook Jerusalem and laid siege to any rebel stronghold. The Romans massacred the Jews, destroyed the land, and martyred many religious figures, including Rabbi Akiva, in truly gruesome ways. The last of the rebel strongholds to fall was Betar in the Judean hills. The stronghold could have withstood longer, but was betrayed from within in 135 CE, reportedly on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the Jewish month of Av, the saddest date on the Jewish calendar upon which many tragedies came to pass. It is the anniversary of the destruction of both the first and second temples. Bar Kokhba made his last stand at Betar and was killed, although the details of his death are murky. After the suppression of the revolt, Hadrian changed the name of the province to Palestine to erase the ties of Jews to the region. He prohibited Torah law and the Hebrew calendar, burned Torahs on the Temple Mount, and sold many Jews into slavery. He reestablished Jerusalem as a pagan capital. To add insult to injury, Jerusalem was prohibited to the Jews, except on Tisha B'Av. It took 1,832 more years for Jerusalem to be fully liberated in 1967. 350 hideout cave systems from Bar Kokhba's revolt have been mapped by archaeologists, and you can visit some of them today in modern Israel. Moses Cohen Henrique. Moses Cohen Henrique was a Sephardic Jewish pirate living in the 1600s, and yes, he was a pirate of the Caribbean. As a Sephardic Jew, Moses was not, shall we say, positively disposed towards Spain and Portugal. Both countries had inquisitions and had expelled, killed, or forcibly converted their entire Jewish populations and confiscated all their worldly belongings. Many Sephardi Jews, having lost their homes, ended up living in the Caribbean islands and Central and South America after the expulsions, searching for a new life without persecution. 
Some of these Jews became involved in piracy, with ship names like the Queen Esther or the Shield of Abraham. A few headstones in Jamaica's Jewish cemetery, for example, even bear the iconography of the pirate skull and crossbones. Moses, like other Sephardic pirates, was particularly interested in attacking Spanish and Portuguese ships. He wanted vengeance for what had been done to his people. Moses went undercover to Seville to get information about the Spanish fleet, sailing dates, and the treasure it would be carrying out of the Caribbean back to Spain. In September 1628, when Moses was 25 years old, he was invited by an admiral of the Dutch Armada to use the information he had acquired to help plot a massive gold heist from the Spanish. Moses and the Dutch successfully surprised and raided 16 Spanish ships off the coast of Cuba. The gold, silver, rubies, and pearls captured would have been worth around one billion U.S. dollars in today's currency, one of the biggest hauls in pirate history. After this incredible success, Moses led a contingent of Sephardim to Brazil, where he founded his own pirate island off the coast with his share of the treasure. There, he pursued a successful career as a privateer. When Brazil was captured by Portugal, which brought the Inquisition to the Americas, Moses moved on again and went on to become an advisor and friend to the legendary pirate Henry Morgan, namesake of Captain Morgan Rum. Moses, ten steps ahead as usual, was never caught by Spain. hope you've enjoyed these stories of eight badass Jews throughout history. Listeners, to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Have a wonderful holiday. Chanukah Sameach to you all. Oh my God, this is the hardest one I've ever done. This is harder than the live one. I mean, anxiety aside, it was more like taxing on the brain, which I don't have. In addition to his other nicknames, at this point, we assume he retired Fat Moisha, Harry the Gonoff. Morris is now known. God, I'm really f***ing this up. With a name like Morris Abraham Two-Gun Cohen, you can assume I am talking about one badass motherfucking Jew. Your assumption is correct. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to give you an alternative version. Okay. With a name like Morris... (laughs) Excuse me.